0: great to see you. Great to see a good number of visitors as well you're very very welcome if this is your first time at Rev you've kind of just come along to see family or whether you're looking for a church or you don't actually know about Jesus and you're just interested you are very very welcome um, what I'm going to be doing for the next 30 minutes really is uh, to teach from the Bible. We do this every week at at Rev because we we really believe that as we teach from the Bible, God's words, that God speaks to us through his spirit and that he equips us to grow and to become more like him. And we're in a teaching series at the moment um, from the books of 1st and 2nd Samuel on the life of David. So um, if you want to start getting ready, we're going to be in 1st Samuel 17 today. It's a long passage that we're going to read through, which is great, kind of like almost a third of the message is going to be taken up by me reading the Bible. Which uh, that, like, you should feel good about that. That should be something to be happy about. Um, but uh, so, we're, yeah, we're a few weeks into a teaching series on the life of David. And um, we've, we looked last week, Steph kind of kicked off the story by looking at the fact that um, David's anointing as king. So, Israel, who were God's people in the Old Testament, at this point have their first king, who is called Saul, who was chosen for all the wrong reasons. If you want to boil the story down, he was chosen as king for all the wrong reasons. The people wanted a king because they wanted to be like the nations around them. And they wanted a king who would mi- win military victories and get rid of their enemies. And they didn't particularly care whether that king loved God or not. And so they got Saul. And Saul messed up. And as a result, God has rejected him and has said, I'm going to find someone who actually is after my own heart, who trusts me and loves me. And he goes and chooses David. And last week we looked at 1 Samuel 16 and the fact that Samuel, who is the prophet over God's people at this point, goes and anoints David in secret. And David's this young, I don't know, probably in his teens, shepherd boy. This kind of youngest of the family and God chooses him and says, you're going to be king over my people. And he anoints him. No one knows about this, by the way. This is like hush, hush, kept in secret amongst a few people in Israel. And so David is anointed to be the future king over all of God's people, while Saul is still technically the king. But from this point onwards, the Holy Spirit comes upon David and he's set apart for the task that God's given him. So that's what we saw last week. So bear that in mind. That's going to be really important to remember. David has been anointed in secret to be the future king over God's people, while Saul is still technically the legal king over over God's people. Really important. So if you want to remember something for the next 15 minutes, please remember that. Okay, you all clear? Great. We're going to look today at the story of David and Goliath. Which is probably the best known story concerning David, if not one of the best known stories in the whole Bible. Even if you weren't brought up as a Christian, you might know it as the classic underdog story. Classic, like this young shepherd boy takes on this giant and wins, and it's kind of seen as this amazing kind of, yeah, the underdog can win kind of thing. Or if you've been brought up as a Christian, you've probably been taught it a few times a year in Sunday school, because it's a good story to do from time to time, and if Whoever's doing kids' work has forgotten to plan anything. We can default to falling onto David and Goliath because there's acting involved. Um, so, but what I want to do today, um, what I want to do today, is look at this story and to look at actually how it shows us Jesus. Um, and I think there's, I felt during praise that there was a sense that God wanted to speak and do stuff in people's lives today as a result of the message. And so I'm not too sure exactly where it's going to go, which is a bit uncomfortable. I like having everything planned. But I just get, I get the sense that God wants to speak and change people and set people free from certain things. And I think this is actually a, this is a great story to be looking at, because when we understand how it ultimately points to Jesus, it actually sets us free from a lot of pressure that we might have if we read the story without realising that it points to Jesus. If you read the story and don't realise what the point of the story is, you might end up feeling under a lot of pressure to think, so I need to be like David, that I need to grit my teeth and trust God at all times and be really, really strong and courageous like David was. And that's disheartening if you don't feel like you're that kind of person. That's disheartening if you're the kind of person who thinks, last week I failed and didn't trust God. And I don't want to, I want to make sure we don't see the story in that way today. So we'll see where we go, but we are going to preach Jesus out of the story, and it's going to be good. So, um, but we have a long passage to read today, which, as I said, is great news because we're essentially sitting under God's word. We're listening to God's word being read out, and uh, you can follow the words up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you, or if you might just actually just want to listen um, as I read it out. But whatever helps. So we've got a, a bit of a long passage, but. Um, I was going to say, take heart. Don't take. Oh, this is God's word. This is God's word that we're going to read together. And even if I was to just read it and then sit down, we, it would have done us good to hear God's word. So let's read this. First Samuel 17. We're going to read almost the whole chapter. Go up to verse 54. So, First Samuel 17. So, just a tiny bit of background. God's people's biggest enemies at this point are the Philistines. So just before we jump in, that will then make sense of the first line. Now the Philistines gathered their, their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succo and Azekar in Epheshtamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And they drew up in line of battle against the Philistines, and the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span, which ran about three meters, so pretty tall, whose height, sorry, he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of his coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, which is very heavy, by the way. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "'Why have you come up and drawn out for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants.' But if I prevail against him and kill him then you shall be my servant then you shall be our servants and serve us and the Philistine said I defy the ranks of Israel this day give me a man that we may fight together when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine they were dismayed and greatly afraid as I'm sure all of us would be now David was a son of, a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. He was old and advanced. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons that went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three elders followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of the thousands. It's an always odd reference, cheese. Um, See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were fighting in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came out to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold... The champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come to defy Israel. And the king will enrich, um, um, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach of Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the Armies of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way. So shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know the presumption and evil of your heart, for you've come down to see the battle. But David said, What have I done now? Was it not just a word? And he turned away from him and spoke, and toward another, and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go up against this Philistine and fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And that when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he, the lion or bear, arose against me, I caught him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the, from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine." And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I haven't tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks?' And the Philistine cursed David by his gods." The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come with me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God whose army, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your heads. And I will give the dead bodies of the Philistines to the host of, to the beasts of the air, the birds of the air even, and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. When the Philistine arose and came near and drew, drew near to met David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell to his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in, David's, in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head." When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on their way from Sharim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel um, came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. It's a pretty cool story. It's a very, like, I don't know, there's a lot of action, blood and guts that... Oh, cheers, thank you. Is it getting a bit dry towards the end? <laughs> so it's classic kind of blood and guts, gore kind of story, which some of you might find off-putting, some of you might think, yeah, I like that. But it, like I said, it's the classic underdog story. And often, and I don't think this is wrong, often the way it's taught, or the main point that's made out of this story is, here are the different ways that David trusted God. And you should do the same thing. And I think those are excellent lessons. In fact, um, I had, I've, I've got a load of those lessons in my notes, but I just think, in terms of what God wants to do today, I want to move on mainly to the second half of what I was talking about. But essentially, what you've got here is someone who trusts God who sees through God's eyes, and Saul, someone who doesn't see through God's eyes. So we, we call the story David and Goliath, but you could just as well call it David and Saul. This is a contrast between David, the man after God's own heart, who sees things through, through the right lenses. If I take these glasses off, I can't really see you guys properly. I'm looking through particular lenses, the natural ones in my eyes. If I put these glasses on, I can now see you clearly. It's a little bit like that. It's like Saul and David are looking through different lenses. Saul looks through natural lenses and goes, I can't see the big picture all I can see is this giant in front of me. I can't take him on. We can't take him on. And David looks through the eyes of someone who trusts God and loves God and says, Of course, we can take him on. He's defied God. So it's a story of perspective. So you could just as easily call it the story of David and Saul. And I think there are loads and loads of lessons that we can learn as Christians, particularly those of us who love Jesus, about the way that we look at situations in our life and the way that we look at them and making sure that we're not looking at them through natural eyes, but we're looking at them through the eyes of the gospel, the eyes of faith that Jesus gives us. And actually, we're not putting our trust in things that ultimately are natural. So to give, a, I suppose, an example that might hit home, my Facebook feed at the moment, I know it's a bubble and you just basically have an echo chamber of, what your friends think, and generally your friends think the same thing as you. But it seems like a lot of people on my Facebook feed are riding a heck of a lot of their life on what happens on the 8th of June this year. It's like general election, for those of you who <laughs> haven't caught up with that. It's like post after post about why you should vote for this party, why this party is going to transform the UK, and why if you vote for this party, the UK is going to burn and fall apart, and everyone's going to die. And, it's just, and Sometimes it's very cataclysmic. And I believe that we should vote. I believe that we should... Vote with our conscience before God, trusting that He ordains MPs and ministers to be in positions of power. But I don't believe we should put our ultimate trust in that. And sometimes, if we put our ultimate trust in that, we're being a little bit like Saul, looking at going, "Oh yeah, there are some problems in this country. If we, oh, if we put all our trust in that party, everything's going to be solved, and they won't. What? They they will." The different parties, I'm sure, will do lots and lots of good in their respective ways, but they won't solve the ultimate problem of humanity. God can. And so we look to God's kingdom, we look to what is unseen, which sounds like foolishness to the world. Sounds a little bit like a shepherd boy trying to defeat a three-meter-high giant. But that's what we look to as Christians. And so I think there are many, many lessons that we can learn from this story. And as you read through it yourself, I'm sure you can just see part after part where you've got Saul as the example of, here's what it looks like to trust in man. And David, the example of, here's what it looks like to trust in God. And that line, I just think, that line that he says in verse 47, that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. You're in a massive battle situation. You think we need swords and spears. And David's just rejected taking on Saul's armour, which, side point, interestingly, the, the phony or rejected king of Israel has just unknowingly given his armour to the true king of Israel. I just love the irony that you get in narratives sometimes. But David's saying, God doesn't fight that way. In theory, if I go up to this giant with, a, with, a ear, with, a, with an earbud or a Q-tip, <laughs> God could still defeat him, because God's the one who's fighting. And I think there's so many lessons that we can learn there. But what I want to do today is spend the rest of the time looking at this story, perhaps from a perspective that we don't always do, particularly not the way I was ever taught it when I was growing up in, in Sunday school. I think we, I, was very often, we, I very often got there, here's how David trusted gods. But what I want us to do is ask, what is the point of this story? What's the point of David and Goliath? Not just what are the lessons that we can learn, which are all valid and gloriously true. What is the point of this story? Why did the person who wrote First and Second Samuel think it's worth putting this story here in this place and writing it in this way? And I think here's the point of the story. Saul, a few chapters earlier, has been rejected as king for not trusting God. He is a phony king, a rejected king. He should have been the one to step up and to take on Goliath. He represents the nation... The greatest enemy of God's people steps out of the ranks, Saul cowers, and as a result, the whole of Israel cow with him. He should have taken that responsibility. He should have been the one to step up and say, I'll do it. But he has has not trusted in God, and God has rejected him. He is now a rejected king, and we see that in his attitude. David, this is what I told you you needed to remember, what has happened to him in the chapter before? He has been anointed in secret. No one knows about this. He's been anointed, and as he's anointed, the Spirit of God rushes upon him to equip him for the task that's ahead. And David comes along, and whilst the whole of Israel and Saul are cowering, he steps up, and he says, I'll take him on. And he destroys Goliath, and as a result, the whole of Israel get to join in in his victory. I think David and Goliath is primarily God saying, this is my man. This is the man who I have chosen to be king over my people. This is the man who will represent you before me. This is the man after my own heart. And when we look at it that way, which I think actually in context makes the best sense of it. If you read the whole narrative in one go, I think the main point the narrator is trying to make is, look, David is God's chosen man. And Israel, you get to join in in his victory because of God's chosen king. When we look at it that way and we read the story, we realize we're not David. In the in the story, if we're trying to match ourselves up to characters here, we're not David. We can learn loads of lessons from him, but we are not David. We, if we we're to look at this story in terms of what we were like before Christ, we're the Israelites who were cowering behind Saul, saying we we can't take it on, we can't take it on. This is this is a story of Israel's gospel. Israel's greatest enemy is defeated by Israel's chosen king but it's a shadow of the true gospel. Let me tell you about the greater Goliath and the greater David. Because humanity for millennia at this point and for centuries after this story has been in the grips of a far greater Goliath. We're talking about Satan, sin and death. Right from the start, the first fathers of humanity failed and as a result, they are in subjection, it seems, to evil powers and Satan, sin and death. And they have been unable to do anything to get rid of this tyranny. There's been no, no one who's stepped up and taken them on. You look at Abraham, you think he's pretty good. He died, didn't, didn't step on death, didn't defeat death. Think about David, even. He messes up big time towards the end of his life. Solomon, no, he messes up pretty big time. Solomon's son definitely messes up. There's no, you look through the whole Old Testament, there is no one who takes on the tyranny of Satan, sin, and death. And you can imagine. The Bible never says this, but you can always imagine the powers of darkness taunting like Goliath did. Give me a man that we may fight together. And for 40 days, or in this case, for thousands of years, no one stepped forward. Give me a man that we may fight together. No one. Silence. No one can step up to take on this enemy. But in about 30 AD someone, a Roman governor called Pilate to be precise, cries out, behold the man. Comes out to a crowd of people and he's been talking with a man who's been claiming to be the king of the Jews and he says, behold the man. But you look at this man and you think, no, something's wrong. Because the man that you've just brought out and obviously Pilate's being sarcastic here, the man that has just been brought out, a guy called Jesus of Nazareth, who was a carpenter, and an itinerant preacher is currently a a flogged, bloodied mess who is heading towards crucifixion. Behold the man. Okay, Pilate, you're probably right to be sarcastic. This man, that's pretty much as plausible as a shepherd boy taking on a giant in a fight. You're kidding me, right? Within hours, that man is hanging on a cross, gasping for air. And as with David, the taunts come his way. So people walk past, and a bit like Goliath taunting David, he saved others. He can't even save himself. If you're the son of God, come down from that cross. He faces the same kind of thoughts. For all intents and purposes, it looked like evil had won again. We had a guy who looked like he might be the king who would deliver us, but the Romans do what the Romans always do with those kind of people, and they crucified him. Evil has won again. Again, pretty much the same outcome you'd expect, as from a shepherd boy confronting a giant. But the amazing twist in, in this particular story, as with the story of Goliath, is that as this Jesus, a Bethlehemite, a descendant of David, breathed his last breath, instead of being defeated, instead of winning, the powers of evil suddenly found themselves not as conquerors, much like Goliath expected to be, but on the receiving end of a blow to the head so crushing that they would never stand again. And the cross which is take, take the foolishness of a shepherd boy confronting a giant and multiply that by a 1,000 and you've got the cross. The cross, the, fo- the folly, this seeming shame had unexpectedly turned into a victory so absolute, so indisputable, so unequivocal, so total, so absolute, that the very powers that had led to Jesus being crucified, had the shame of the cross transferred onto them. And as Paul puts it in Colossians 2, he says Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Jesus crushes the head, not of Goliath, but of Satan's sin and death at the cross. And just like the shepherd boy, God's true anointed, stepping out and defeating God's greatest enemies, Jesus the true descendant of David steps out and defeats the greatest enemy and crushes his head. That's, that, I think, is the true picture that the story of David and Goliath is pointing to. We are not David in this story. Jesus is the ultimate David. Jesus is the one who steps in, defeats the Goliath of Satan, sin and death at the cross. And through being united with him, through us putting our faith in him, from being baptized into Christ, we join in in that victory. So we are conquerors, but we're conquerors through him. And that's so important to understand, because if if my message today was trusting God, see things through God's eyes, bye, it would leave some of us thinking, yeah, we're up for it, and then catastrophically failing a few days later. And a lot of us thinking, I know that I can't do that. We need to know that all of the lessons that we can learn from that story can only be true of us because the ultimate David has conquered. He has conquered. He is now worthy. He is ruling. He has defeated Satan's sin and death. And that means that we can trust him. That means that we become conquerors at the same time. So because he has won, so here are a few things that, that it means because Jesus has ultimately defeated Satan. Because he has won, the accuser, Satan, who taunts us, has been defeated. Revelation 12 says, rejoice, O heavens, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. There is no one standing in heaven currently who has a legal right to accuse you if you are in Christ before the Father. He's been cast down. All he can do is whisper into your ear and say, do you remember that stuff you did in the past? Do you remember the shame of what you did? Or do you remember the shame of what was done to you? Some of you might be carrying that. Some of you might be carrying shame of stuff you've done in the past or shame of stuff that has been done to you. You feel dirty. I want to say because he has won, the accuser has no right over you. The accuser has no power over you. And if that's you, I'd love to pray for you at the end. I think it would be great if we could do some praying for each other at the end on this. The accuser has been thrown down. Because he's won, the power of sin is broken. You don't, if you are in Christ, you don't need to jump when sin says jump. You don't. As a Christian, you can not sin. Sounds crazy, but it it, it says that in the New Testament. We are are joined to Christ in his victory, and because the Spirit has been given to us, whereas we used to not have the ability to stop sinning, as a Christian, you are now able to stop sinning. So whatever it is for you that you think that temptation is just too strong, too strong, the gospel says he has won the victory and you are set free from that and that doesn't mean that it doesn't require effort Okay, it's not like we don't, we don't just float through life not sinning it requires effort, but it is now possible through the power of the Spirit to not fall into sin. And again, if that's you and you think there's just areas that I just I keep messing up in, I want to know the victory of Christ in my life, I'd love to pray for you as well. We get, we'll get some, some guys up later to pray. Um, but that is another thing that happens. Because he has won, because the great David has won, God is for us. A Christian should not live, go through life thinking God's against me. God is for us. God is on our side. He is for us. It says in Romans 8, he said, if God is for us, who can be against us? Think again about the, the story of David life. If David's for us, who can be against us? This guy's got God on his side. Seriously, we can follow him. That's, like, we're, we're not going to have any trouble if we're following him. God is for us, which means we can't. If we're in, if we're in him, if we're in Christ, you can't lose. He is for you. Because he's won... The powers of darkness have been broken and shamed. A passage I read in Colossians 2, he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. This is a, something that probably we don't talk about that much in the West because the general ring of our culture is, well actually perhaps less and less now, but for a lot of people has been there is no such thing as the spiritual world, so lump it but actually go to a lot of places around the world. They are very aware that there is such a thing as a spiritual world. And there may well be some of you here today who are very aware of the influence of darkness, either in your life or in the lives of people that you're around. And because he has won, Satan and his minions, his demonic powers have been broken and put to shame. That is part of the message of the cross. It's not just that Jesus dies as a substitute in our place, though that is gloriously true and we get forgiven. He defeated Satan and sin at the cross, which means that we don't need to fear the spiritual and demonic oppression. Doesn't mean it's not real, doesn't mean it's not there, doesn't mean we don't deal with it. But Christ has won. You have to know that if you're in Christ. He has won over demonic powers, He has conquered and crushed them. Which means actually, as you, if, if you are around that in your life, you don't need to fear, but you can pray and trust, and trust in Christ that he has broken those powers. And because he has won, ultimately death one day will be swallowed up in victory. There will be no sin or sickness. There will be no cancer. There will be no strife. There will be no trouble. All things will be made new because he has won. And on that day, then shall come to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. The victory that Christ won on the cross through his death and resurrection is so absolute that there is a day coming where he will swallow death up in victory. And we'll be walking around in new creation, potentially saying, Do you remember that thing called death? Don't, you just stopped existing. I don't remember what that is. I kind of have this faint memory that there used to be a time that people would stop living, but I don't even understand what that means anymore. That we, death will not be there anymore. And that is obviously impossible for us to get our minds around, just as it will probably be impossible for us to get our minds around not being in the presence of God and not knowing eternal and everlasting life when we're in there. But our great David has won. Our great king has won, which means that actually we get brought into that victory. And that means actually if there are areas in your life that you think, I don't think I'm living in victory here. What you need to know is, objectively, you have got the victory in Christ. And now we need to be like the Israelites, who say the victory's been won. Let's walk into that. There's a bit. There's a lot of grit and determination involved in being a Christian, but it's never the grit and determination of saying I'm doing this in my own effort. I need to win this victory. It's saying He's won, therefore we win, and we get to be in Christ, joined to Him. And so I'd love it if the if the band could come back up, and um, we're gonna let's just check time. We're gonna we're gonna respond and. Um, I'd love to. I'd love to pray for people, and I. And I think. And and after, if we've got, are there any people from the pastoral team who are here? There might be a few of us. Um, if you'd be up for doing some praying a, a bit later, but I just think those those areas that I've spoken of, the idea of shame and guilt of the past being undone, the idea of being set free from the power of sin, the idea of the fact that God is for us, that demonic powers have lost their authority, and that one day death is swallowed up in victory. If if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I. I now, I now know objectively I have victory in that, but I want to see that practically in my life. I want to, I want to, I want to know that victory in my life. There's this area that I've been struggling with for years and I want it broken. I know that Christ has won the victory. I want to walk into that now. We would love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you and we would love to declare the victory of Christ over. And that's what we're going to do now. If we, if we want to stand actually,